On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses a trick of the tale. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair and on this episode I'm joined by my very good friends Ken Gregory and Paul Zotter as we continue in the, Je- in the Genesis catalog, this time covering A Trick of the Tale. thing about doing the palaver is every time that I am positively convinced there is no dissension in the ranks, that everything is self-evidently either terrible or wonderful, I'm always proved wrong. Wow. <laughs> we have dissension in the ranks. So I was, I was surprised today, as we were gearing up for this, to have Ken come down pretty heavy in the anti-trick-of-the-tail column. I felt that way. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, I always I always <laughs> thought trick-of-the-tail was, was one of those albums that was just self-evidently wonderful, and everyone just had to, you know, bathe in the glory that was a trick-of-the-tail, even if they didn't listen to it all the time or whatever. So I'm very, very keen to, to get into this and explore this a little bit further. Well... The benefit to doing the the contextual history of the progressive rock timeline is that I can interject my opinions while I'm doing the history. It's fantastic. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, what would you believe? A year before a trick of the tail came out, Rush's "Fly by Night" was released. Uh, also, uh, Kansas ah. "Song for America." Oh, "Song for America" is good. Well, you know, it's going to happen eventually. We'll get there. It'll be 2023 and we'll get there. So um, just amazing, amazing music. Rick Wakeman, The Myths and Legends of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Uh, Frank Zappa and the Mother's Invention, One Size Fits All, uh, General Giant, Freehand, uh, Jethro Tull, Minstrel in the Gallery. Do you know that one, Joe? I, I, I'm very peripherally familiar with it. I don't know it as much as I should. But it, it okay. is it is well regarded. Um, hey Ken, what year are you reading? Oh, I'm actually reading 1975 because. Got it. Okay. Yeah, because a trick of the tale was released so early in 1976. Roger that. Yeah. So so I. Well, I it's don't... interesting because just I think every band that you mentioned also released something in 76. <laughs> oh. Because <laughs> people just kept releasing records. Yeah, well, and, and and Wind and Wuthering was also <laughs> released in 1976. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, well, that kind of makes sense because Wind and Wuthering is kind of like Trick of the Tail Part Two. It's now, funny. I don't necessarily I'm, mean that in a good way, but <laughs> yeah. Eventually, it came that bands only made money or realized they only made money on the touring, so they'd 
release an album and tour for two years. But back then they hadn't quite gotten to that point and they were still kind of touring for nine months. Yeah. Yeah. Another album that came out in 76 and I'm sorry, Canada, I don't, I don't mean to just jump into 76, <laughs> but I'm missing uh, my punchline, but okay. Keep going. Elias of Sun Hill came out in 76, <laughs> <laughs> which I love. I yeah, don't know yeah, about yeah. anybody else, but All so, right. so let's, well, no, 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 no. Um, I, 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 I don't know if you heard of this obscure album by Pink Floyd, Wish You Were Here, September 1975. <laughs> and this is to illustrate a point. That is just sonically perfect. And I don't understand why Genesis was always a little bit behind the curve in their production. I feel like a trick of the tail is kind of dull compared to their live shows. A little overcompressed, uh, you know, and some of it gets lost. That's my that's my biggest complaint. Symbols are really loud. The the hi hat. I don't remember what song it is. The hi hat is louder than the fucking bass. Now it's ridiculous. Talk, yeah, yeah. There's some imbalances here. Now, now, Chris Guire, Fish Out of the Water, November 1975. That might have better sonic power than Trick of the Tail. Um, Queen, A Night at the Friggin' Opera. Like, mm. you know. Uh, so, so there, there was no excuse for not sounding crystal clear and beautifully perfect. Well, it's funny that you say those words, Ken, because I, I think in the, in the potential, I wrote some notes and I used, I used those words, clean, clear, and I actually used the words beautiful to express the way I think this album sounds. It's close, but okay. If, if, if compared you're, to the other Genesis that we've had up till now, if it's you've beautiful. Got, if you are stuck on a desert island with one album from 1976, would you pick a Trick of the Tail or 2112? Oh, that's easy. A Trick of the Tail. <laughs> <laughs> but which, which one jumps out at you and sounds more like a in Trick your of face? the Tail? Really. I, if I had I, one of the things I can't stand about twenty one twelve is I think it sounds like it was recorded in someone's garage. I just I there's so much about it I just don't like. Yeah, there's I have, Yeah, I have to say if if I had to only listen to one album of vocals for the rest of my life on a desert island, I would have to go with Trick of the Tail compared to Getty Lee's screeching in twenty one twelve. But I might say this. If I only had to pick one album from 76, although John Anderson's Elias of Sunhilla would be very close, I might actually go with Left Overture by Kansas. Oh, Left Overture is just mint. I think, Ken, I think you've stumbled onto uh, a whole series of palaver episodes, the Desert Island episodes, where we examine which albums we would take to a desert island from each year. Oh, I like that. That's good, Paul. All right, fine then. We, we we won't talk about twenty one twelve. Let's just talk about Wish You Were Here and A Night at the Opera. Okay. Mm. How in a world of Wish You Were Here and A Night at the Opera do we get, you know, the kind of dull production we get in Tricking the Tail in twenty one twelve? See, I, oh, I, I I I don't I I'm somewhat surprised to hear you say that. Now I hadn't put them in the context of Wish You Were Here or Night at the Opera, right? What I was thinking was within the milieu of Genesis themselves, this 
is a shining example. It's significantly better than the production on lamb, and it's significantly better than the production on wind and weathering. Mm, I think it's it's not quite lamb. It's I don't think it's really up to lamb standards because I mean lamb they kind of recreated a live room. And I feel that this is just a compromise. You don't get the live room feel and you don't get the crisp studio feel. It's just somewhere weirdly in the middle. So Wow. I, I lean more to with Joe on, really? on this uh on this aspect. I I do I do like the production quality here better than the lamb. And and it's interesting that you give us those two sort of two analogs to compare to Ken, because I think as much as I love night at the opera and I believe it's extremely innovative in in its production and landmark, I feel like it's still very dated. When you listen to it, the drum sounds kind of the way things fit together. And, and I think that, Trick of the Tail is somewhat dated as well, but I think it's it it fits a little bit better. It's a little bit more forward thinking. Where I think that you're right, wish you were here. It's kind of timeless. It's I mean, perfect. that just doesn't sound. It doesn't sound like it belongs anywhere. I mean, it's just it's it, it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Okay, I rest my case. That was a tough case. Why do I want to say? And I think this is the case. Wish You Were Here was the first ever CD I bought. Mm. And I, I still have that original one. Mm. The wow. first ever CD. Yep. Wow. <clears throat> Very first one. It was important to me that it was Wish You Were Here. Wow. You've got I class. Don't even know, I don't even know what the first CD I bought was. Oh. <laughs> So let's let's talk about the particulars of this album before we get into some of these uh, these finer points. So as Ken mentioned, A Trick of the Tale was released in February of 1976. Um, it was released on the label Charisma slash Atco, depending on who you talk to, and it was produced by David Henschel and Genesis. David Henschel obviously will stay with the band. Um, he, he was sort of their Eddie Offord. He had, you know, engineer and, and tape operator type duties earlier. And he will then go on now to produce this album as well as the next two. Combing. Tape operator. Yeah. Um, that means he cleans the, cleaned the heads and he put the tape on at the beginning of the session and took it off at the end. We all have to start somewhere. Came a long way. Wow. So, The Trick of the Tale is the first of four-man Genesis with the departure of Peter Gabriel. We have Mike Rutherford on 12-string guitar, bass, and bass pedals. Tony Banks on piano, synthesizers, organ, mellotron, 12-string guitar, and backing mm. vocals. Phil Collins is the drummer and percussion, as well as lead and backing vocals. And Steve Hackett is on electric guitar and 12-string guitar. The track listing is Dance on a Volcano, Entangled, Squonk, Madman Moon, Robbery, Assault and Battery, Ripples, A Trick of the Tale, and Los Endos. 
and the blurb is as following. A Trick of the Tale is the seventh studio album by English progressive rock band Genesis. It was released in February 1976 on Charisma Records and was the first album to feature drummer Phil Collins as lead vocalist following the departure of Peter Gabriel. It was a critical and commercial success in the UK and US, reaching number three and number 31 respectively. Following Gabriel's decision to leave the band, the remaining members wanted to carry on and show they could still write and record successful material. The group wrote and rehearsed new songs during mid-1975 and listened to around 400 audition tapes for replacement frontmen. They entered Trident Studios in October with producer David Henschel to record the album without a definitive idea of who was going to perform lead vocals. Eventually, Collins was persuaded to sing Squonk, and the performance was so strong, he sang lead on the rest of the album. Upon release, critics were impressed by the improved sound quality and the group's ability to survive the loss of Gabriel without sacrificing the quality of the music. The group went on out on tour with Collins as frontman and Bill Bruford and his big bouncing blue ball as an additional drummer. <laughs> and the resulting performances in the U.S. raised Genesis' profile there. The album has been reissued on CD several times, including a deluxe package with bonus tracks in 2007. How about the album cover? I don't know that I care for it. They went decisively English after the American themes in Lamb. It's funny that you say that. That was exactly what I was going to say. It seems very English to me. It, it goes back to this idea that I think I raised in the last episode and is going to raise itself here again. I don't care for Genesis whimsy, and I view this as sort of a whimsical. Ah. Um, I, I view this as a whimsical cover. I'm also not a big fan of covers that sort of speak to very explicitly address every song on the album. Mm. And this this is a this is a pun intended, a trick that Genesis have been trying for quite some time. And I just, I don't know. It, it, it It's not anything that inspires me in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I say, when it comes to album covers, yeah, they're, they're I definitely think they're behind the rest of the progressive rock community which is well said which is weird though right because this album cover is credited to hypnosis really? what other album did we were talking about did hypnosis do the cover for mm. wish you were here huh mm. well so the cover the cover isn't my favorite favorite thing about that album i'll i'll just say that but okay, but they they push the boundaries. You could say. Well, yeah. I mean, and and I, I guess it's not. I mean, the cover is is okay. There there are several different visual motifs associated with "Wish You Were yeah. Here" that came out of hypnosis. Yeah. Obviously, the I think the most striking is the guy shaking hands with the guy on fire. Yeah, you know, this has nothing even approaching that impact. 
Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, it has some. I think it's got somebody with a tail, right? So. Yeah, there's a guy with a tail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're supposed to be aliens, apparently. I mean, I'm, I don't get the idea of aliens out of this old English artwork. A lot of just mixed metaphors and different themes. Well, it that. fits. To me, it fits the sound of the album, though. It the 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 album sounds very goldish, yellowish, kind of clean and and fine. Like the the pictures, the drawings, whatever they are, they're very they're finely drawn. They're they they're not with big bold strokes. They're they're yeah. fine, almost dainty strokes. And um and that's kind of how I find the production of this album. It's clean, it's clear, it's fine. It's um it's it's uh I probably wrote it in a much more eloquent eloquent manner if I could figure. But it's just uh it's nice. The I, I mean I, I dig it. I, I I'm not saying it in a bad way. It's, it's well it's, it's not uh, it's not bad. It, it's, it's, it, yeah. So yeah, that's what it is. It's it's beautiful to me, but it's not really softer, right? Not it's not in a soft way that it's beautiful. Sure. It just sounds it's very to me, it's very pleasing to listen to. While it, you know, it's very dated. It does. It definitely, to me, sounds like you know we are in 1976. So, you know, I, I want to hop back very quickly to the album cover. So, my vinyl album, um, the, the 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 cover, it's not nearly as yellow as some of the interpretations <laughs> I've seen. It's a more parchment color, which is very, very... The color is very pleasing with regard to that. Yeah. Um, so I, I just wanted to throw that out there. But, but parchment. yeah, for, for me, this album, it... And I'm not suggesting... Maybe I am. It After the, the heaviness and the density of Lamb... This album has a certain, dare I say, playful lightness about it. In to me, this is like the Genesis answer to going for the one. There, there doesn't seem to be any sort of weight sitting over top of this, pressing on everyone. Everyone seems to be relaxed, comfortable, and enjoying what they're doing. Hmm. I'll buy that. Okay. All right. The the other interesting thing that I would like to point out is, you know, while the 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 previous albums were all very strong and everything else, when you when you get into the lore, right, you start to get this feeling. That there was there was some tension ev- evolving around song subject matter, right? Um, I, I believe there's a quote from Gabriel with regard to you know when they decided they wanted to do a concept album, and Rutherford suggested some sort of sci-fi fantasy type story, and and Gabriel said, "No, nah, that's too twee." I believe is what he said, and and you know Peter took it into this very more you know, surreal, but yet at the same time, raw and personal 
sort of way, right? And I think that's going to ultimately that that sort of shift in subject matter is going to be manifest in the now parallel careers between Peter Gabriel and Genesis. And I think when you look at the 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 subject of the songs here, it's clear that Peter wasn't around saying, God, don't don't sing about that anymore. It's like you had the and uh, you know, for lack of a better phrase, you had the the prog nerd crew who were now completely unchecked, and, and they went f <laughs> full bore in into their nerd subject matter, and they loved it. You know, yeah. Which has probably been good that I that I haven't really ever paid attention to any of the lyrics uh, <laughs> on this record, because because we all know. Tony Banks was just completely throttled in the previous album, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so Ken, that that's another fascinating thing, right? So we've we've talked about we've talked about I've talked about Tony Banks being the central cog. We've got that great quote from Hackett on the Lamb saying, "Well, there's a lot of keyboard parts, and I just tried to kind of squeeze in where I could, you know." <laughs> and this is maybe the one album where Tony Banks isn't all up in your business all the time. Like mm. when I was going through this, it's like, wow, Steve Hackett gets kind of space to breathe here, which was cool. You know, well, you, I, you don't get a lot it, of that in Genesis albums. Yeah. I mean, I called out Lamb for very little 12 string and then we've got um i think in entangled in in the live videos uh tony's back on guitar so we got some kind of cool texturing going on that we'd lost yeah yeah, I, yeah. you know the 12 string listening to this album with the 12 string just made me miss my old 12 string so badly alvarez oh dude that guitar it was it's the, by far the easiest 12 string I've ever played in my life and for years that was the only acoustic that I had and I played it all the time and I loved playing with playing it and never once came at anywhere close to playing anything that sounded what these guys are doing it's magical and I I just kept thinking oh gosh I wish I had that 12 string <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, that segues nicely to vocals because um, uh, I thought it was a lot of Phil singing with himself, probably. But checking out the live tracks, I'm surprised how much Rutherford and Banks are actually singing. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, I I think when you listen to the studio um, album here, I, I agree with you, Ken. I think it does sound like Phil singing with himself a lot. And, and, you know, that may very well have been if you, you know, if you follow the lore here and how this came about, they could very well have recorded these these songs and Phil had done all the backing tracks fully expecting another singer to come in and, and sing the lead. That mm. that mm. may very well be what, what actually transpired here. Um, because I think this album... And, and we'll see as we go through the next couple. But, you know, we, we had, we've, we've had great fun at the expense of, 
of John Anderson and Trevor Rabin with too many Johns and too many Trevors in, in the later stages mm. of the, uh, you know, the late eighties and early nineties. I, maybe I'm wrong and maybe you guys will laugh at me, but I think this is as close as Genesis ever comes to too many fills. And, and it's yeah. not, it's, it's not even annoying in any way, shape or form, but when all, you know, when, when yes. And some of these other bands were going into 85 gazillion vocal tracks of the same vocalist in that period, mm. Genesis didn't really seem to do that. Yeah. Well, this is f way before the, the gang vocal. Sure. Yeah. Uh, era, but I agree with you. I, it, it's very, it's totally non-offensive. I think it, it sounds great. The vocals are very well done, I think, in this whole record. Sometimes, I mean, it's, it's such a different tone because everything is so nice and the, the tone is so pretty. Um, maybe pretty is not the right word, but there's there's not a lot of bruteness that you got with Gabriel, the the shouting and the, and the, um, you know, just his delivery was so much different. This is much more sung yeah. than than what Gabriel offered. I, I have to throw out this too. You know, it's well documented that Phil didn't really want to sing, and you know, they auditioned all these guys and they couldn't get anybody. But yet, one person was sort of brought up, and uh, Phil talked about him in an interview. Came in and couldn't sing it in the keys that they had done the song because they never really thought about the keys. But the wikis actually name him. Uh, his name is Mick Stickland, hmm. if you believe that. And um, he, and Mick Stickland doesn't even have his own like link in Wikipedia. Like his name is just types in regular. You can't click on it and find anything more about Mick Stickland. Find out what he ended up doing in life. Um, but it makes me think that you know people with the first name of Mick don't always have a good outcome in progressive rock. They <laughs> sort of get left by the wayside. <laughs> Poor Mick. I, I, I find that that story. Is this some really in reference. Yeah. Very good. Ken. Mick well Fortune. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. I'm a little slow here. <laughs> well, you know, uh, Mick Pointer, I've got that, I've got that killer double live red LP of, of Mick Pointer's mm. band, which is, you know, a slamming version of script for jester's tear among others. Um, Wait, he got the tour with his own band on the marquee and still like do some shows, but lead a normal life. I mean, it's yeah. probably not a bad deal, dude. It's not a bad gig at all. The um, yeah, the, the, the guy he's got who, who sings, there are certain aspects of early fish. He does very, very well in certain aspects that just make me want to climb the walls. That's neither here like nor that, there. Like that new Queensryche singer. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Latour is amazing. He's great. He's great. Sometimes it, you, you think it's Jeff Tate. Mm -hmm. But I digress. Sorry. All right. Who's the other Mick? Mick Stickland. <laughs> okay. Mick Stickland. The other Mick. <laughs> but but I find so going back to that I, I find that story just to be fascinating the fact that these guys you know here they are they're so accomplished musically and and they they have never stopped to contemplate you know 
what key a song is in versus the ability of the person singing it. I just find that to be funny. Yeah. Although, you know, you figure if they're recording, you know, they kind of went in saying, well, we'll just record it and find someone else to sing it. Yeah. So they're, they, you know, they're just playing it in whatever, whatever key they wrote it in because they're thinking, ah, I mean, uh, it, <laughs> I, I've done that, right? I mean, I guess we all have, right? We write a song, we record it, and we go to sing it because we'd never wrote the vocal line. Then we write a vocal line. We're like, fuck, this is the wrong key. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, good. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they they did adapt what two different movements in the suppers, ready to different keys. Yeah, kind of. Well, they spent the, all all of the We Can't Dance tour was was rekeyed. Yeah, that so they got around to it eventually. Yeah, poor Mick Stickland was probably like, "What the fuck." <laughs> <laughs> So, so for me, I, I just, I like I said, I find this album to be just very joyous and and yeah. easy to easy to digest. So, you know, if if it's okay, why don't we go into the tracks and sort of start to explore maybe some of the things that Ken doesn't sit so well with you? Because I'm I'm very keen to hear this. Okay. All right. So. Actually, Ken, Ken, would would you mind if I, I read the text that you sent out earlier this evening? Because I think it really kind of sets the stage. No, this should be good. Go for it. So I'm going to quote uh, one Ken Gregory from earlier on today. The album starts at the title track. The first three are confused blobs of sound. Now, I... I had to go and look at, at where the title track pops in because I honestly couldn't remember. And, and the, for those of you keeping track at home, the title track is the second to last song. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so according to Ken, the album really starts at A Trick of the Tail and ends immediately after on Los Endos. I think it's the best production, and if if they led off with that track, it would be a nice, like, bright way to begin. It would have worked for me. Okay. But instead, they, they start off with Dance on a Volcano. There are some aspects of this album that I find interesting. One of those aspects, and, and it, it manifests itself right off the bat here, is... Their odd time signatures are very obviously odd time signatures here, which is not something that Genesis has necessarily done a whole lot of. They've, I think up to this point, they've been much more subtle in their use of odd time signatures, right? Yeah, this is pretty brutal. In my notes, it says verse meter disconcerting. It's fun. It's athletic. But it's just a little disconcerting. It takes me back a little bit to Foxtrot with like Get Him Out by Friday. Yeah. Or Watcher of the Skies. And yeah, but it they there's ironically, now that <clears throat> and I find this throughout the whole record, now that Peter Gabriel's gone and he's not trying to sing over everything that they that they make up. <laughs> they and now that Phil is singing and and I almost 
And I know they were all writing lyrics anyway, the whole time. But it just seems like there's more freedom around the music because, you know, Peter Gabriel isn't singing all over it. So to me, it seems there's more freedom around the music. and, And at the same time, the music tends to get out of the way of the, the, the vocals more often than not. Um, but there is a lot going on in, in this song. It's very, it is, a, it's probably the most dense piece of music from, from the standpoint of the verses that are happening. Um, this is, this is just a fun song. This has always been a fun song. And I, I'll tell you, like I've been listening to this track for so many, so many years over and over that when listening to it this go round, it was really not the focus of my attention. And yet, even after I would listen to the whole record, I couldn't get Dance on a Volcano out of my head. Really? Yeah. It's nuts. It's just a random cacophony of nonsense. The the, the, uh, wow. the samba <laughs> whistle in the beginning. <laughs> I think the Latin percussion salesman walked into the studio and like, you know, said, Hey, Phil, try out all this stuff. And Phil was just like, yeah, I'll buy it all, right? And he bought every little goofy piece of percussion he could get his hands on. And because the, the whistle in the beginning of the song drives me nuts. I don't know what it is. It just hits bad frequencies in between my oh. ears. And then there are other parts in the album where he just starts going with the cowbells and what. I, I, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever noticed a whistle or a cowbell. In what is that? The whole beginning of Dance on a Volcano just freaks me out. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. I just thought that was guitar. I did too. Maybe it is. Then that's got to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yeah, that's uh, fun. I think it's a great way to open an album, you know, the slight little arpeggio and then the the guitar and, and uh, drums and then the, the heavy bass pedals coming in. It's just, um, I think it's great. Love it. I think one of the highlights for me is Tony Banks kind of enters into the frantic keyboard passage that takes us into the... It's, it's almost like he the whole time up to that point, He's just playing along, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm playing along with the song because this is what these guys wanted." And then, at, then he like, it's like he saw his opportunity, and he just said, "Fuck it, I'm going." And he just started thrashing. <laughs> and do we think that Steve Hackett's eyes started to roll at that point? <laughs> oh shit! Here we go again. <laughs> at least Steve is active, you know. Compared to the last album, Steve Steve is very present and accounted for. And he's absolutely beautiful on the next one. Rutherford talks about Dance on a Volcano, though, and he says, Writing The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway had been like pushing a huge weight uphill, but Dance on a Volcano, the first song we wrote for A Trick of the Tale, just flowed out. It sounded dark and it sounded big with interesting chords and time signatures. I felt that anyone hearing the intro to that would think it was how Genesis should be going forward. So okay. Luckily, they didn't do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I like that sentiment, though, because you know when I think about my entree into Genesis in the '80s, 
and then getting into Duke and having Foxtrot and loving that. And then I know Jay was always a big fan of Trick of the Tail, I thought. Yeah, I think so. And, and I want to say that he had even mentioned to me Dance on a Volcano is really great. And I think he's the reason why I went out and got Dance on a Volcano or um, Trick of the Tail. And, you know, having, you know, sort of, if you will, if you include all of this as early Genesis, you know, my, my three early Genesis albums, you know, prior to Invisible Touch um, and uh, We Can't Dance and whatever the other one was. Wait, oh, I guess Genesis. Genesis. But, yeah. The three early albums were Duke, Trick of the Tail, and Foxtrot. It's a pretty solid collection right there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I and I put in my notes, you know, overall, I thought that Trick of the Tail is a big step forward for the band from where they were, where they were with um, the Lamb. And I think this is this was a huge step step forward. That moves us on to Entangled, part two of the Big Sonic Lobs. I love it. You've got to see it on the YouTube's live. It's just beautiful. Okay, so now it's beautiful. Uh, yeah, I take I take back the blob <laughs> thing. I mean, I mean, I mean, Dance on a Volcano you know, is a sonic blob, uh, but but this one is fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah, just just you got to get to the Googles. You got to find the uh, Entangled live, and you know, just don't look too closely at Bruford because he still does some of those moves. Oh, really? Oh, oh boy. He's, he still got his moves on that tour. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, he was just honing in the moves. I mean, they d- didn't really come into fruition until he found his white karate suit. He was he was <laughs> developing the Bruford butt wiggle. Yes. 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 I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> really wasn't going there. Boy. Well, see, in, that, his, that, in his in his white gi. That I, I, that's the problem, credits. though, right? Because that was my introduction to Bill Bruford on that damn ABWH tour, and that is forever how I'm going to remember that guy <laughs> standing up with that goofy ass bank of Simmons pads way up in the air, shaking his butt around. That's that's what I will remember. And and little did you know the genius of Roundabout and Close to the Edge. Little did I know. Yeah, but at the same yeah. time, I think this is. You know, this is not an example of of soundtrack dissonance. I think the the mood that they create here with the with the music is supported by the lyrics. I think the two go hand in hand, and you know, I get I get where they're going. So you yeah, know, it's okay. Huh? You know, the comment you don't like clever too much. Uh, explain then your fondness for sting oh Ooh. Um, that guy's cl- cleverer than clever more than his own good that's an interesting question paul hmm. because like when you said that one of the songs that popped right into my head that is it probably falls into that category and i absolutely adore is Englishman in New York, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. That's about as clever as clever is going to get. Yeah, I mean, all <laughs> I, yeah, seriously. And and I love it. 
So, yeah, I don't know. I can't explain it then. Apparently, I'm just full of crap tonight. Well, maybe... Uh, <laughs> it's different, different, potentially a different genre, although I find Sting, Sting's solo stuff to be somewhat progressive in nature. Yeah. So... All right, another a topic for another day, perhaps. Yeah, we'll, we'll, but at uh, least at least it's not whimsy. It is not whimsy. We're going to get to whimsy. We're yes. definitely going to hit whimsy, and, and not even yet, though. So we are going to hit squonk, which mm. a is just a fun name, fun to say, according to the the wiki lore here. Squonk was the the tumblers falling into place, if you will. For Phil being the permanent lead singer, mm. um, you know, because and I've seen this in a couple of different interviews where, you know, Tony Banks said, yeah, we knew Phil could sing the softer stuff, the ripples, the entangle. And, you know, some of the things that I've read since suggested that at some point early on in the development of this album, they had decided that Phil probably would do the lead vocals there, but the, the dance on the volcanoes and the squonks and things like that, they didn't think he could pull off. And, you know, it, it remains unclear. I think if, if Phil said, yeah, let me give it a shot. Or if someone said, eh, well, why don't you just give it a shot or, you know, but it seems clear that squonk was the first of the, the quote unquote heavy songs that, that Phil managed to pull off. And very, very mm -hmm. cool. Now, what I didn't know, I, I never knew the entire time I've been listening to this album, is is the genesis, <laughs> the origin of the of the name Squonk. And, and, and the Squonk is a mythical creature reputed to live in the hemlock forests of northern Pennsylvania, our own huh. backyard. Oh, no. Is there a place called the Hemlock Forest in Pennsylvania? Um, well, let's let's <laughs> let's follow the link. Um, no, it doesn't go. It goes somewhere else. Anyway, it says in the Hemlock Forest of northern Pennsylvania in the United States, legends of squonks probably originated in the late 19th century at the height of Pennsylvania's importance in the potential timber industry. And the legend holds that the creature's skin is ill-fitting, being covered with warts and other blemishes, and that because it is ashamed of its appearance, it hides from plain sight and spends much of its time weeping. Um, hunters who have attempted to catch squonks have found that the creature is capable of evading capture by dissolving completely into a pool of tears and bubbles when cornered. So, I never understood throughout this song how all of a sudden it winds up with a bag full of tears. Huh. Well, that's because I never knew that the squonk was actually supposed to be some sort of mythical creature. So th this was this was an unexpected joy that there was some basis in fact for, you know, this this track and and why it is. I just thought that was funny. Mm, I searched for hemlock forest map and I do see corroborating evidence, different maps, and it kind of goes through PA and Jersey, maybe down as far as Virginia. Seems to be yeah. the hemlock belt. 
There you go. Yeah, and there is a Tuscarora State Forest in northern Pennsylvania. So perhaps that is where I wonder if we should visit. We mm. could probably make a progressive palaver field trip out of it. I love it. And go search go search for the squonk. Go search squonk hunting. <laughs> yes, I think I, I definitely love, like that. I love how in the conversations about this with the band, they reference that this song, they were sort of modeling after Cashmere by, by Led Zeppelin. Right? After they say it, you can kind of get it. But like the production is way off. But honestly, I listen to it. I'm like, well, this song is way better than Cashmere. <laughs> I mean, that, that song was a bore. Um, I love the, the different guitar plate apart. And I love this is, this is sort of what I mean about the, the music getting out of the way, the lyrics and vice versa, right? The very complimentary, the, the, the chorus is really a keyboard line, right? Right. You know, the, and, and, and there's no vocals over it, but then when he does sing a vocal, it's, it's a, uh, it's a high note that's held out over the, over top of it, which, which is so much more complimentary, I think, than than probably where Gabriel would have taken things earlier. And it's not necessarily to compare one or the other. I think it's just that this was something that clearly Tony Banks was frustrated with with Peter Gabriel, and um, it seems like here they've they've sort of worked that that part out. Articulate that, Paul. Me- me- meaning that that Gabriel would take too long to build suspense, or he just wouldn't climax where. Banks wanted it, or I think it was more of instrumental parts that they were writing, and I think we talked about this specifically with the Lamb. But they, you know, they were writing instrumental parts that they thought would just be instrumental, and then Peter Gabriel would come in and sing all these lyrics over them. Sure, and, yeah, and it was like one thing on top of the other, and 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 I think you know when we talked about, or you know when we talked through Foxtrot and. And selling England by the pound, there were a lot of they were writing a lot of things where, you know, they were writing the music and then putting the lyrics over it. And and um, I just noted in those interviews, there always seemed to be sort of this back and forth, you know, with with Banks kind of talking about how you know there was too many vocals, and Peter Gabriel always talking about how the vocals were never you know getting through the mix. There was always too many keyboards, so it just seemed that they were they they were at odds a bit. And I feel like they've begun to solve that here hmm. Hmm. yep Got totally it. love this song and um strangely it while it to me it foreshadows future genesis it always for some reason always reminds me of sticks something from like the grand illusion or pieces of eight um sort of that that keyboard that keyboard line in the chorus there well, it's funny that Hemlock is a tree because Squonk makes me pine for the Genesis album uh, <laughs> and Invisible Touch, actually. Well done. <laughs> that was clever. Uh, love it. I, I too, love this song. Um, I, I love... It's funny that this was the the song, maybe it's not funny, this was the song that sort of cemented Phil as the singer, because I think the vocal line here, to your point, Paul, is just outstanding. And I think it's, at the same time, it's it's musically understated. For me, this sort of encapsulates 
the 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 power of of Phil in in both roles because I already said I love the vocal line, but like when you listen to the drums and the keyboard solo section, I just think they're they're wonderfully tasty. So mm. you know, Phil is you know this is sort of the start of of Phil you know exerting his influence in in multiple areas, which is very cool. I think you just said that the the part about this production that describes it best i you know i've said it's clear it's clean it's beautiful but you know what it's understated uh there's nothing like mind-boggling about the production it's just it just sounds great um well it may be dated so i don't mean to digress but you just said that and yeah it made no. me think of that and i think ken that maybe even though genesis always seemed to be behind in the production of the day I think they made up for it in spades by uh, introducing the gated drum reverb uh, and maybe bringing it to its. I guess Phil Collins really was totally responsible for it, but well, and and they the sort of changed. It, yeah, yeah. Well, it, I think Genesis sort of sort of changed it. No, no, Joe. Sorry, Joe. The 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 lore around the gated uh, reverb drum sound involves. Peter, Phil, and Hugh Padgham while recording Peter's third album. Peter's third album. Which yeah. Phil obviously then took and ran with that tremendously. Yeah. But it's it the, the lore has that tied to Peter's third album. Okay. Hmm. Well, I... That could be a whole discussion onto itself. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, but... but, 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 but they're but, a bunch of slackers when it comes to production, but they ended up pretty pretty good. But but, but Phil, I mean, I mean, a, a drum recording is only as good as the drummer. They have to hit hard and consistently, and we've already agreed that Phil did that early on. Yeah, he's a and, beast. Yeah, and 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 you know, verb no verb, gate no gate. He's just the man here. Yeah. The interesting thing also is that there is some lore I think that goes that Hugh Padgham actually first began the, the gated drum sounds with his work, early work with XTC and the police prior to working with Genesis. Maybe one day we'll have Hugh on the palaver and we can get to the bottom of this story. Hugh Padgham, that would be fun. That would be awesome. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. So so our first recording had an absolutely obscene gated reverb. <laughs> <laughs> A decade after this. Oh, that's too funny. Madman Moon. Ken, you have an interesting take on this particular song. Yeah, it sounds like they, they lined it up for Peter. They're like, well, and, and it's only credited to Banks. So, you know. He's thinking, well, maybe it, maybe maybe Peter will show up and he'll sing over this. It, 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 it's got that humor. I mean, uh, a musical humor to it. It's it's got different parts, and you know, it's a little bouncy here and there. Yeah, that's true. What what I find funny, and my note on this on this song is, this is a track that. I always want to dismiss when I think about this album because it's, you know, it, it's quiet, it's whatever. 
Um, and, and there are certain aspects of it that I always sort of key in on with regard to that. But when I get into it, I'm always amazed at how good this song is. I, I just find that I, when I'm paying attention to it, I react to it much more strongly than I always anticipate that I will. Um, I think it's, I, I think the, the, the beautiful piano vocal intro is absolutely perfect. Um, you know, and one of the, 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 the one track, the one lyric that, that sort of always captures my mind is, so I pretended to have wings for my arms. I love the way Phil ah. delivers that, that line. It just, it, it, you you feel that sense that he's trying to get across in the words there. I think it's it's just a, a perfect delivery, and I love it. Mm -hmm. he, yeah, he he's he's writing novellas, and I think this theme continues particularly through Duke, where he's not quite as direct. Is Peter not quite as clever or crafty as Peter, but he really wants to wrap you in his story? He's also not as wordy as Peter, so. Mm. Okay. Do, do, yeah. doing, doing slightly more with less words. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. I was just looking. So Madman Moon is a surprisingly... Uh, it's a surprising seven and a half minutes long. It's actually the the second longest track on the album. Ripples actually is the longest. But when you look at this, right, because one of one of the the big hallmarks, one of the checkboxes, if you're Tom Brislin, of progressive music is you know the long form song. And we've talked that really Supper's Ready was the was the the one time that Genesis topped 20 minutes, right? We'll have to look and see how long um, Home by the Sea and Second Home by the Sea is, but they're not nearly that long, and I think Fading Lights is probably... Um, it, it doesn't it doesn't get particularly close. But when you look at, yeah. at the, the length of songs on this album, they range from... Uh, a trick of the tail actually is the shortest at 434 up to ripples at 803. Most of them are in the six, six and a half minute range. So, you know, they're much like the production, right? Because I, I think what we've all talked about, and I think what we all agree with is in, in a lot of regards with the exception, maybe of, you know, invisible touch and, and Genesis, their production is always a little bit off center from where the standard is for whatever reason above beyond left right whatever it it's not it's never the pinnacle of of the time and i think you know in terms of them being prog and and we've talked about this the the pantheon of of prog groups they all approach the idea of progressive music in their own unique way. And and Genesis is, and, and certainly here, I think we're undoubtedly progressive, but we're not doing it, you know, we, we don't have a Gates of Delirium here. We, you know, mm. we don't have an Awaken here. 
but it's it's I just find that to be interesting. I, yeah, it's still very deep <laughs> to me. I ex- <laughs> I experience. But he agrees. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I I experience Madman Moon very deeply, nonetheless. Um, I hear elements of Snowbound from, and then there were three. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah there 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 are definitely a couple of moments on this album that I think very much speak to, and then there were three. Either that mm-hmm. or. And then there were three reaches back into the past catalog for inspiration and re recycled some things. I'm not quite sure what the relationship there is. Both valid. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, and, and, you know, we'll, we'll get there when we get there, but I wonder if, if some of that isn't Mike Rutherford looking for anchor points as he steps into being the guitarist, right? Mm-hmm. Because you know, as as and and we'll we'll brush up on our lore there. But as I recall, you know, Steve Hackett wasn't necessarily supposed to leave the group <laughs> at that point. And by Mike's own admission, you know, he stepped in to record the guitars, the you know, the the lead guitars on that album. But he wasn't prepared, and and he doesn't think he did a particularly stellar job with it. He's he thinks he he got through, but it wasn't, you know. It, clearly, it wasn't a, a Duke type thing. So I I think maybe what we'll find is he was. I my interpretation is on and then there were three. It's Mike Rutherford trying to play what Steve Hackett would have played. <laughs> so you know, Madman Moon is is I think it's it's a. It's a somewhat surprising gem in the middle of this album, and I, it, I'm with you, Ken. It's like I said, it's one of those things when I when I pay attention to it, I find I really respond to it. It's wonderful, and it's it's funny because on the vinyl, this is the end of side one. So you flip it over, and you're smacked right in the face with a big, fat, wet, sloppy dose of Genesis whimsy. <laughs> Yeah, this just doesn't work for me. Um, <laughs> and it, it's even worse live. <laughs> I can't even believe they did it live. I mean, all this good music on this on this record, and they're wasting everybody's time on... And there is some cool music at the end of this, actually. But, yeah, I mean, it's almost like they're just forcing it, right? How contrived. They're just like, we need something whimsy like Pete would have done. And uh, I just okay. don't like it. Well, I mean, okay, so the whimsy was not exclusively Pete. That's what Agreed. this song proves. And well, Phil, Phil, if you if you believe the interwebs, Phil is reprising his previous role uh, from Oliver as the Artful Dodger. Right. Okay. And still, ro- still doesn't work for me. But and yeah. robbery, assault, and battery could be a, a horrible dark experience and they're trying to turn it into a comedy and it's not quite working. Yeah. I don't know. Me. And and so yeah, this is a song that I will listen to it, but I don't enjoy it really on any level. Okay. Uh, up until there's um there there's a bass break at about 3:30 that kind of rocks. But 
Yeah, there, there's actually some cool music, musical stuff happening on the back half of this tune. Right, yeah. Uh-huh. But, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I'd be, you know, it's funny that this is the first track on side two, because I would have conveniently just dropped the needle on Ripples and not even had bothered with this. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. You've got Robbery, Assault, and Battery sitting right in between Madman Moon and Ripples, and it's just mm. like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it works better on the concept of side one, side two yeah. than it does when you're just listening straight through. Because it, it seems somewhat misplaced. There's that magic moment that you had to, you know, get off your ass and chain and you know flip the disc. <laughs> well, and, and small, the small intermission. And seriously, that that intermission, you know, it plays a role, right? Because it 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 sort of gives you a moment to, you know, take a breath, reset, whatever. You know, we, we talked about this in the Yes catalog, right? So as CDs came into play and, and suddenly you're listening just front to back without breaking at all. Oh, and by the way, we've got more space now. And these things started to creep up to 60 and 70 and eventually 80 minutes long. It's it's an awful lot to ask of, of someone, you know, unless you're, yeah. unless you're driving across the country. That's that's just a whole big thing. Yeah. But, I, you know, I... I find Ripples to be, it's funny, I always think that I love Ripples, and I think I do, but I think in terms of how I perceive the the value of the song, I, I think I always sort of invert Ripples and Madman Moon, and I think Madman mm. Moon is the better song even though I always think I like Ripples more, if that makes sense. So Ripples starts with promise, and it does appear to be genuine. Um, if anything, no whimsy. It's no whimsy. Really, it's really poking at your heartstrings. Yeah. By the time they get to the end, and... Banks is doing the octaves on the keyboards. It's almost comical. I imagine Jack Black doing this. It's like <laughs> it, it, it becomes, it becomes at the very end. It's like, whoa, you, you guys are doing the stereotypical ballad with a stereotypical ending, and you had me right up until the last sixty seconds, and I'm starting to feel it's getting to be a little too much for me. I do love the 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 general sentiment that they're presenting here. I like the imagery they're creating. And I like this idea of, you know, the ripples never come back. They, they go in one direction and that's it. They're gone. And, and you know, there's, there's, there's some power there, but yeah, they, you know, it doesn't necessarily come home to, uh, to roost, so to speak. Well, I, uh, I'm buying it, uh, hook, line and sinker. I, uh, I I dig it all, all eight minutes and three seconds. And it's one of the, definitely, you know, like it's, it's funny you say that the Madman Moon may be the better track. It very well may be. Uh, this one is definitely, I, I think, more memorable. Uh, you know, obviously the hook in this one is, oh, it's is huge. pretty, pretty mm -hmm. giant. But, yep. but yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm a big fan of this. And I think, you know, if uh, 
you know, they they heard Phil Collins sing this and still had doubt that he should be the lead singer of the band. I, I don't understand that at all, but yeah, uh, it, or it worked out. It, so. it, and that that's a really really good point, right? Because this is, you know, it this is a song that was. It seems like it was written for Phil, right? Yeah, you, you know, just the. the the way it fits his his voice is phenomenal, and and maybe this is maybe this is a really good time to bring in something from from Rutherford's book about Phil. So, at this point, you know, in, in this point in the story, this is where they've dismissed Mick Strickland, and Phil came in the next day and said, "Listen, can I give it a go?" and Rutherford goes on to say, and I'll quote here, it sounds strange to say now, but Phil's voice then was not the voice it would become. Strat would often, and that's Tony Stratton-Smith, their manager. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Strat would often be quoted as saying that Phil sounded more like Pete than Pete did, but actually their voices weren't at all similar. It only seemed that way if they were singing the same song, the same Genesis-style melody. What people also tended to forget was that Phil had always sung backing vocals with Pete, so Phil's voice was already familiar. So I just I find that funny that Phil's voice then was not the voice it would become, and yet this particular song I think it is the perfect showcase of Phil as a lead vocalist because when he's done it before, you know I I think Four Absent Friends is not a particularly strong manifestation of, of Phil singing, um, you know, the, the shared vocal in Harold, the barrel, you know, eh, and, and a lot of the, 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 the backing and, 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 uh, and mirroring that Phil did on the lamb. But this song, it just, it, it's a perfect fit and it's, it's phenomenal with regard to, I think the way Phil delivers it. Yeah. I stand down. You, you guys have it on this one. <laughs> well, like I said, I, I still think lyrically it, it has the sort of shortcomings that you're talking about. But it, it just as I'm sitting here talking about it, I, I keep going back to that. The last line that Phil sings, um, I guess maybe it's on the bridge into the chorus. Um, this is the last day that your face will look like today or whatever. And uh, and then it goes into the huge hook and and yeah that's pretty pretty memorable. Yeah, the you know it's an interesting comment about his voice not being what it would become because you know even when I you know when I think of you know similar to how I, I think I mentioned this when we talked about the lamb where the lamb Peter Gabriel's voice was the was the first time I felt like I heard the voice that I think of when I think of Peter Gabriel the the voice from Peter Gabriel plays live and those early albums and the, and the, and who I think of as Peter Gabriel. And I think that's an interesting thing because while it's awesome and he's great, you know, when you think of Phil Collins, the vocalist, you know, you think of like, I, I think the first time it really appears is in like Duke when he's singing guide vocal and and things like that you get that that roughness to his voice the screaming things right and then that's continues on and and that's sort of the 
the the vocalists that we hear in Abacab and so on, and then his solo stuff. And that's kind of that that um, that's like the voice of Phil Collins. So he very much is still kind of finding his own, I guess, kind yeah. of through this. I can't wait to talk about Duke. Just it, it's going to be one of those things where you guys are going to have to like shut me up. <laughs> it's going to be one of those letdowns, like 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 it was with uh, Grace Under Pressure, and uh, there was another one in there where we talked about it. We were like, oh. I feel like we didn't do this justice. Uh. <laughs> um, I felt that way about um, Foxtrot, actually. Oh right, yeah, yeah. But I've got a I, I've got a whole dissertation on Duke. So nice! I can't wait. Duke is going to be. I have to see if I still have my old vinyl from my sisters that I can pull out and look at. So that brings us to the start of the album, "A Trick of the Tail." <laughs> <laughs> All right, so a trick of the tale. Fantastic. So this is where the aliens come in, right? Uh, the video is a little goofy, right? They're kind of casual. They're sitting around a piano. I, yeah, I was going to say I has got a hat on. Yeah, I, I I couldn't remember if this was the one. And, and isn't there like a little tiny fill somewhere? A mini fill? Yeah, like a little little teeny tiny. Oh, you know, like. I don't think I've ever seen the video for this. I didn't know there was I've, a video. I think I've seen it once. And and I want to say that it was, and, and we'll have to edit this out if it's, if this isn't the case, but I want to say that when I, I watched it, it, like Ken's describing it, they're all kind of sitting around this, this piano, which is kind of weird. And, yeah. then, and then, like I said, there's a little mini Phil shows up at some point, and it just... I, I kind of short-circuited at that point, and I couldn't really huh. deal anymore. <laughs> you know, it, it's this is this is a fantastic sort of example, and, and I think it's actually a really really good example of what I'll call you know Genesis story matter. It, it's it's one of those songs where they're they're storytelling. It's a very deliberate, very. Um, straightforward you know conveyance of facts of a story this happened and this happened and this happened but with the the sort of fantastic uh subject matter that that they like to do and you know it's i just i think it's it's a really good example of that style of of song that they like to do and it's, you know, it's a story that you can follow along with. It's a story that is interesting and it helps with that, with, with the chorus hook. Um, you know, they got no horns and they got no tail. I love it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it gets in you and you can kind of figure it out. And, you know, it's, it's from a structure point of view, it's fun because this, this being, this creature who's wandering around looking for something and he ends up running afoul of the humans. And then you get sort of the story from the humans perspective where they're like, you know, this, what's, what's this guy got for us? And then ultimately the little guy tricks him and, and runs away. So, you know, I think there, there are some interesting aspects of the structure of the story that they're telling. And I, I can, I can easily invest myself in, in what they're trying to convey. So mm. your validation is here, Joe. Oh, good. Uh, 
the, the wikis validate you. Special effects make Collins appear to walk and dance on the piano as well as Steve Hackett's guitar. There you go. The video concludes with all four of the band members miniaturized on the piano keyboard. In a 1994 interview with VH1 for the Phil Collins one-on-one episode, Collins called the video the most embarrassing and cringeworthy of his entire career. (laughs) Awesome. Phil and I are simpatico. (laughs) That is funny. That is very, very funny. Yeah, so good. I'm glad I remember that correctly, even though it was <laughs> terrible. Yeah, but it's just it's just beautiful. It's the best production on the album, from my experience, and, and the melody stays with me. Could have been the lead-off track, and it, and it truly was their first promotional video and the first single featuring Phil Collins. There you yeah. go. Then we finish with Los Endos. You know, I'm I'm a sucker for musical themes being reprised in in sort of either either an overture or uh you know whatever you call something at the end of a, of and, a piece an enditure an enditure yeah um <laughs> you know and, and and i just i think this is great the other thing that i find funny about this this is the one track that i in my experience the vinyl conveys something significantly different than the digital media does. Los Endos on my vinyl is just, it's, it's got a lot more punch to it than, uh, than I, I recall. I mean, I always enjoyed it, but when I started listening to it on the vinyl, I'm like, yeah, this is, this is awesome. And I can never get beyond you know, apparently the, the band was, was fixated on this as well. And there's a passage in Rutherford's book, and I forget which exact tour it was, was on, um, but there was at least one tour, if not multiple, that they would end with Los Endos. And of course, you know, at this point, you've got the, both drummers going because Phil's back on the kit, and, you know, they've got the whole big light show and everything else. And there's someone, you know, Mike is describing, I guess, the end of, of the of the show to someone, and I forget who it is. I, I'd have to look it up. But this this person <laughs> says, so, so wait, you finish your show with no one singing on center stage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, yeah, and he's and kind of—he's kind of like, well, yeah, but it's really awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but it, you know, it, it's one of those things where you describe it, and you're, like I said, I can, I can totally envision how fantastic that would be. I seem to recall, um, you know, when we saw them in '96 or '7, whatever it was, you know, the the. The, just the sheer joy that was the huge instrumental section of Fading Lights. Mm. I can imagine ending a show on Los Endos like that. Um, that, yeah, that would be spectacular. Yeah. I mean, you need to do a search for uh, Los Endos 1976 live. And, and in the last musical section, they're scrolling the credits <laughs> <laughs> and that and they have a little like like 
video of each guy that doesn't sync up with the music, but it's indicative of that guy. Uh-huh. And the Bill Bruford part is a front view of him doing the ass wiggle. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. You know, let's let's oh, gosh. let's not. It's it's so easy to poke fun at Bill Bruford for any number of reasons, but you know we we've talked before about you know and, and for those of you who haven't heard. Ken, in one of the rooms of his apartment, has this spectacular um, poster that is a graphic depiction of various musicians' influence in the industry. And do I recall correctly, Ken, that Bill Bruford's ball is the biggest one there or one of the biggest? Yeah, there are only two or three guys with the same size ball as I, he I think. I think David Coverdale, ironically, is one, isn't it? Well, that, yeah, I mean, that, he's got a gigantic ball. That that bears investigation, but <laughs> but I think this crossover right here—he's been here, around a long time. That that dude. This, Sorry. This this crossover right here speaks to Bill Bruford's ball size, because I mean, the guy. <laughs> You know, we, we've already waxed rhapsodic about his his playing and his influence on the the first part of the Yes catalog. I mean, just the 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 playing on the first two albums, and then you know up through through Fragile. I mean, it's it's ridiculous the the hmm? the influential songs that he played on. Then of course he goes and spends time in King Crimson, another in the pantheon of, of prog gods. And while he never recorded with them, here he is, he pops up and he crosses over and now he's in Genesis. So yeah, I mean, this guy is, you know, he's everywhere. And while apparently he wasn't ultimately satisfied with his role as the, the road drummer for Genesis, the mm -hmm. fact of the matter is, you know, Bill Bruford spent time with Genesis, and I think I would have probably enjoyed seeing Phil and and Bill together. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so powerful in in this particular video, and just a quick shout out to Chester Thompson because how do you follow up Bill Bruford? Like, that's friggin' hard to do. Well, apparently, by all accounts, he gets along with Phil and the rest of the guys a whole lot better. Because he's, well, <laughs> he's, he's been part of the show now for quite some time. Yeah. And didn't try to insert himself as a creative entity. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, yeah. Um, all this stuff is, that's what I said in our, our texting. You know, leading up to this, this stuff is just better live. I mean, okay, you yeah. you guys do dig the production a little more than I do, but damn, Genesis live is really a little bit groovier, a little bit more emotional for me. I, I really love it. I, I think Phil's diction is better too. On the albums, you know, if there's one thing about a, uh, you know, Phil versus Pete. It's like I'm not catching all the words all the time, you know, and and I I just like 
the simplicity of the live show where I can catch the words yeah. a little bit better sometimes. I think they're still buried in the mix a bit yeah. at this point in time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really think that uh, Los Endos is such a cool way to end this album because of the recapitulation of the of the themes and the you know the overture type setting. Although it seems like people make a really big deal out of the song, which I and, and maybe it's because of these live performances that you're talking about, uh, Ken. Um, it goes over really well. Yeah, but I mean, I, you know, even listening to you know the interviews and listening to like. Mike Rutherford talk about how cool Los Endos was, and he's like, and I came up with these little bits for Los Endos, and I'm thinking, it's an overture. What, what did you come up with? <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, so it just kind of, I don't know, it just kind of puzzled me when I when I heard all that. But it's a very cool way to end this 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 album. And you know, they, you know, they recapitulated some things in you know duke too which which is kind of what brought me back to this a little bit so that was cool yeah and and i think you know this goes back to the the point that i made in earlier episodes of duke being the ultimate expression of what we'll call early era genesis because i think i think they they take a lot of these things that they've tried and you know, I think they are able to deliver on them all in one package. You're all about the Duke. I mean, I am. I am crazy obsessed with Duke. I am. I. I, I just. I, I literally. I. I put it in, and I just get so excited, and I start. I will literally think for hours about things that I want to say about that album. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful! So I, I, I apologize in advance, but um, you know, I think I, I think a trick of the tale is, you know, it, it's 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 a delightful album. I think you know it it clearly demonstrated the ability of, of Genesis to exist in the absence of Peter Gabriel. I find it interesting. Again, I think Steve Hackett seemed to have a lot of room to sort of operate here. And so it's somewhat surprising given this particular instance that, you know, Steve only has one more album with, with the group before he's gone. I think wind and Wuthering speaks perhaps you know a little bit differently but right now in this snapshot in in february of 1976 all is well in genesis land all that being said i think you know we have an interesting next episode where we consider wind and wuthering i know tom yeah. is particularly keen on this album i have an interesting I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say it's good that somebody is. Yeah. I, I have an interesting relationship with, with Wind and Wuthering, and I'm, mm. I'm very interested to, to talk about it. So I hope Tom's going to be available to, to lend us his, his insights. Yeah, we need, we need him in here. I, there's one thing that I forgot to mention that I'll just bring up now about, about, uh, trick of the tail so in my reading of i could probably just on the wikis the band mentions a couple of times 
how going into the recording of the trick of the tail and one of the reasons they wanted to keep going after Peter Gabriel left is because they were in around $400,000 worth of debt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That- and all I could, all I could think of was my God, they've been at it for this long and they've had the success, you know, the touring success that they've had in, you know, they just seem to be getting better and better. And yet how can they be, how could, they function with that much debt. I just, it's just remarkable to think. And, and yet somehow like the touring on this album seemed to, they said paid back, (laughs) you know, a good bit of that debt. It's like, my gosh, I mean, it's insane. It, it, it really is. And I don't know if it speaks to bad business management or, you know, just, you know, like like Ken had mentioned, they hadn't really worked out the the economics of of producing albums versus touring, or you know, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. But it 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 is uh, fascinating. And another interesting thing, and I'll have to go back and, and review the book to see where this comes in. But one of one of the claims to fame for Genesis, and one of the things that ultimately may have helped their financial solvency is, you know, they apparently credit themselves with coming up with the very light light rig Mm. because no light rig existed to do the things they wanted to do. So they had to create one. And Mm. so not only did they use it, then they began to, you know, I guess license it out to other, other groups as well. (laughs) <laughs> All right, so I think that pretty much handles us for A Trick of the Tail. I, as I mentioned, I look very much forward to finishing out Four Man Genesis with Wind and Wuthering next episode. So, uh, gentlemen, thanks for coming along and look forward to uh, continuing next time. Cheers. hope you've enjoyed this episode of progressive blather as always we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you and we welcome and solicit and look forward to your thoughts your comments your feedback and your questions you can reach out to us on twitter instagram and facebook search for progressive palaver or prog pala on those or you can feel free to email us our email address is prog pala p-r-o-g-p-a-l-a at gmail.com progressive palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify. And as always, we are hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. Rocking chairs on balconies. I showed you my cassettes you sang to me. Sang to me. How come?
too clever about things.